Welcome to the Healthusiasm podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovation, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book called Healthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And this month, we have two panelists. We have from our American in Paris, at least, and medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hi, everyone. We also have from Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Zouina. Hello, Chris. This means that we are missing our beloved two other panelists, our digital health connector from Barcelona, Aline Noiset, and from London, our customer experience and research expert, Krupa Suter. This means that in this case, we always invite a special guest to our panel. But some last minute consolation and it's just the three of us. So we're going to have either a short show or our panelists will have the opportunity to talk even more. Anyways, together we will amplify the health system that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you're new to the show, you might wonder what healthusiasm is all about. Well, healthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. And before I go to one of the panelists, Aline sent me one of the health issues that she wanted me to put on the show. It was about a human performance company called Whoop. It's a bracelet uh, that you can wear. And it now has introduced a new stress monitor feature in partnership with the very famous American neuroscientists, Andrew Huberman, you may know him from his uh, amazing podcast. And so what it does, it will track daily stress levels in real time by monitoring continuous heart rate variability and resting heart rate. At the same time, it will also provide breadwork protocols for uh, some stress relieving, of course. Thank you for that, Aline. She also sent another one, actually, because last time we talked about Google and everything that they did um, and, and health. And so... One of the things that she sent me is that DeepMind is joining Google's brain team. Basically, there are two separate teams within the Google big holding. But right now, they'll be working together because they're doing primarily the same thing. Good thing about this is that they'll have more focus probably. And to just say what they can actually do and what they've done in the past, AlphaFold is the one that we used, or that we talked about in previous podcasts or previous shows, because they have predicted the 3D models of protein structures. But they also just recently developed or identified a new liver cancer treatment just a couple of weeks ago. Some, some health enthusiasm sent in by Aline while she is not here. Who is here is Aditi, of course. And um, what health enthusiasm did you see in the past month? Well, the first one I was going to talk about is on therapy apps for couples. Obviously, I work in telemedicine and I should have known about this, but I found it really interesting that I hadn't considered that people are now using it for couples counseling and to improve their relationships. So I looked online and there's actually quite a few, as many of you know, that divorce rates are very high. And so this is one way to improve people maybe using the service, uh, feeling less stigma about it. Uh, you could do it by yourself. You can do it with your partner. And so I found it really great use case in a way that maybe people hadn't used before, hadn't thought of doing. Yeah, I love it. And you can do so much from distance. I know you're a specialist in telehealth. Uh, did you see the that um, actually Ukrainian refugees uh, are also working on their PTSD from a distance? They're now working through their trauma in a certain metaverse. Uh, actually, it's a metaverse version of Kiev. 
And it's where they talk to therapists and have some peer support, apparently, actually in a virtual version of the city of Kiev. It's developed by an international team of psychologists. And, you know, while they talk to therapists, they can, as an avatar, of course, because, I mean, in the metaverse, you, you're walking around, let's say, as, a, as an avatar, they are treating themselves against their PTSD. Mo, what health system did you uh, bring this month? Well, it's an enthusiasm that makes me made me smile because I'm a lazy person by definition. Right. So I was thinking about, you know, everyone knows you have to take 10,000 steps a day to kind of lower your cardiovascular and all cause mortality risk. So it's true that has been proved that if you take 8,000 steps or more a day, that it's, it's way better for your overall health. But I was wondering, you know, what is the cutoff point when, till which point can I do less and still have a benefit? And um, it seems that some researchers uh, have dived into that, you know, and um, it seems that in an adjusted analysis, individual who took 8,000 steps one or two days a week had a 14.9 lower all-cause mortality risk than those who never reached 8,000 daily steps. But those who did it every day had a 16.5 reduced mortality risk. So it was higher if you do it every day, but not spectacularly higher. So basically, I'm just giving hope to those who say, you know, sometimes it's it's paralyzing to say, do I have to take 10,000 steps a day? And if you say take one or two, I think that seems more feasible from a behavioral point of view. And you will probably get, you know, started easier. So that's kind of the enthusiasm I have. Now, you have to be careful with that conclusion, right? So uh, these weekend warriors who say, I'm, I'm sedentary the entire week, and then I'll just do everything in, in the weekend. But I think it's a hopeful message. And I think the results should be interpreted with a caution of light, in a caution in light of potential unmeasured confounding factors and, and bias. But I think it's hopeful. And I think those who feel that doing it every day consistently might draw some hope from the fact that one or two days a week might be enough to have 80 or 90 percent of the benefit thanks for that and uh, you know you know what i think if you if you talk to personal coaches what they say is every step you do more is already one step more and it's good exactly. for your health of course at the same time i saw i think it was also last week passing by um I think some recommendation by the WHO saying that you need to do even more than 30 minutes exercises per day. You need to do some weight and, and you need to work on some strength. And so that, there's, there's a lot going on in different directions, I guess, right? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is true that uh, high intensity is really beneficial, right? So a lot of people rely too, too much on long-term cardio, right? While uh, Huberman also talks about it. Eh? So... Um, Every day you should wake up, look at the light and do something as if someone was kind of chasing you with a knife, you know, and, and really get your heart racing for a short period. I think that's also, so it doesn't have to take really long, right? I think high intensity using weights uh, might also be really, really be beneficial. Lovely. Let's stick it to that because that could be a whole episode, I guess. Moving to my health enthusiasm. It's a small one. I saw Uber Health passing by. Uber Health was first launched in 2018. The idea behind this was that in the States, healthcare workers, if they have a contract or a deal with Uber Health, they could book a ride for a patient. It's mainly non-emergency medical transportation, of course, but it was it had as a purpose to reduce missed appointments and to even improve patient outcomes, of course, because um, if they come to the appointment, it's always better. Now, in 2020, what they did, of course, in the middle of COVID is they began offering prescription drug delivery. 
It was in partnership with a company called Nimble RX. I think we talked about it on the show previously. But just a couple of weeks ago, what they did now was they announced a new service, which is a same day uh, prescription delivery. And so the idea is that a care coordinator that is already using Uber Health can also ship prescriptions and attract the arrival of the prescriptions. Of course, for Uber, it's a way to differentiate versus other rideshare companies like Lyft, who also have this non-emergency medical transportation. Um, I think it's a, it's, it's a small thing, but what, what I like about it is specifically, it helps to meet the patient's expectations, which often in healthcare is not always the case, or is a little bit more difficult to put it um, that way. Aditi, back to you. What other health reasons did you see the past month? Yeah, so, you know, everyone's been talking about ChatGPT, and obviously it's a big thing in medicine too. I had been playing around with it, just looking at their answers for various topics in telemedicine that I know. I will say the first version, it wasn't very detailed. The second one is certainly a lot better. But, you know, we were talking about, like, what is it actually useful? And one thing that I had read about was using it for children, understanding their speech patterns, improving their speech therapy. And it reminds me of the fact that really all of this is not really meant to replace anything. It's to use as an adjunct, as a tool, almost like putting it in your, uh, let's say, white coat pocket so that you can use it alongside all of the other tools that we have in medicine. But I find it very interesting that we can use it for children. I mean, there's always various use cases. And every time I hear of one, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. But being able to understand children, maybe the way that you learn it, the way that they can basically look at the way that they're trying to speak or trying to say something and be able to translate that, that's really fascinating to me. Yeah, I also think that's one of the most exciting things about uh, ChatGPT. Um, I heard you say that you were um, you're bouncing off some ideas or, or questions to um, ChatGPT just to know whether the answers are correct. The way that I use ChatGPT actually is it's like I use it as um, a conversation partner. Um, so for my second book, I'm, I'm in the final phase of writing it. I've been saying that for two years now, but um, I've been what I've been trying to use ChatGPT for is I'm, I'm I'm talking with ChatGPT, asking him questions, his or him or her or it, questions about the things that I want to write about, and I go deeper into that conversation. It's like talking to yourself, but then with with ChatGPT, and it brings you new ideas because actually things that you haven't thought of. Now, second to ChatGPT, I don't know if you've uh, seen it passing by, Aditi, but. If I understood correctly, ChatGPT has passed the tests of the medical license exa- licensing exam in the States with flying cars, apparently, as, a, as the article mentioned. And did, did you see that passing by? Mm-hmm, I did. I'll just say that in general, that makes sense. It should, right? Because the way that our test is written is somebody, you could machine learn the exam, but like all things in medicine, it's not really that test that tells you how good a physician you'll be. It's really ap- applying that knowledge, which is what obviously ChatGPT cannot do. Exactly. I mean, what it said, I mean, if I were, if you go to the article and even some other articles related to it is that 90% of his answers were safe enough not to be harmful. 90% is not, I mean, it's, it's good, but I mean, the 10% is still high, quite. But then at the same time, what it said is that only 41% of these answers were really strong enough, complete enough, uh, not vague, and were confirmed and approved by medical experts. So it isn't always right, it's not always complete, right? So Right. We, we can't expect that. But you know, what would be interesting is finding out what the percentage of what humans do, or at what percentage they're getting it wrong. But the difference is, is that we would 
in that moment change, right? If someone were to say to me in front of me, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. I've tried this, this, and this. You would, we would just do something else. Aditya, I have a question for you about that. What is it exactly that, that you're missing? Because a student does not really have hands-on experience seeing patients, right? So passing the exam is one thing. Having experience is, is the other thing. So what, what is it exactly that you were missing in these answers? Well, I mean, the USMLE, in fact, most of the, we, the first one we take is at the end of our second year. And that usually, yes, is very little clinical experience. But all the rest of them, the second and third one, we do have clinical experience by the time we take them. So there's some applicable knowledge. And then really, once we do our residency, there's more of it. Yes, I, I see what you mean. But the reality is, is what I, I think when we think of uh, medicine, we think of it as just a straight science. It's really not. It's like an applied science because a lot of it is based on individuals because we don't know enough about precision medicine to be able to say this is what this person specifically needs. I know that's another branch and people are working on that. And then the other thing is that we just don't know everything that there is to know, right? So there's a lot of experience that's uh, used to do that, that and it may just be something that we're not able to vocalize. And so we're not able to really say how that works. Now saying that, if uh, a machine can learn that, I mean, I can't say that's not possible. I just don't think it's necessarily at the, that level now. And it also has no ethical compass whatsoever. So that I think that is one of the biggest differences. As a final enthusiasm, just a book tip maybe, Your Brain on Art. Uh, it's a book about neuroesthetics. If you're into that, it's, it describes how science behind art can help us change the spaces around us, trigger an actual feeling of happiness and awe. And if you're interested in this field, I mean, there's even this... Um, lab out there made by John Hopkins Medicine Organization, the Peterson Bryan Science Institute, and the International Arts Organization. Um, they all together created the I Am Lab, which is a multidisciplinary initiative to accelerate this field of neuroaesthetics. But the book, Your Brain on Art, is really about how can neuro, I mean, neurochemicals be triggered um, by being in a certain area, in a certain environment, uh, similar to what you receive when, you, when you're watching virtual reality, read poetry, fiction, a film, whatever. Um, so interesting, and we'll come back to, to that type of... Um, triggering later in the podcasts. Thank you for this. It is a health enthusiasm world indeed. Uh, what we see is a many, many positive changes that are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. I personally enjoy watching these changes unfold. I analyze them and try to understand the broader impact of these changes. I even write a newsletter about it called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on healthenthusiasm.com. Now, every month during the Health Season podcast, I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate. And this month's newsletter is Elemental Health. So Elemental Health is about mental health, of course. It was probably one of the most difficult to write newsletters that I've done in the recent two years because mental health is basically complex, right? It includes our emotional, psychological and social well-being, but it is also very much intertwined with lots and lots of aspects in our life. And looking at our life, our life has not always been that easy in recent years. Things about, you know, COVID, climate change, recession. So how could I make it different? How could I write something that was not already written a zillion times before? And so what I did is I, I tried to write about the five phases or the five evolutions of mental health that I've seen in recent history or that I'm seeing happening right now towards when I look at the future. 
Um, I had some fun. I tried to be creative. And so the five phases were the detrimental phase, the experimental phase, the fundamental phase, the instrumental phase, and the elemental phase. As you can see, I've been a bit creative. Let's just quickly go through them. The detrimental phase, of course, is about the accumulation of all the bad circumstances that are actually detrimental to our mental health, of course. I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot of explanation necessary for this phase, but maybe just one number and some remarkable and very exciting new words that are around to us today. One number, the WHO expects that the global cost of depression in 2030 will be as high as the total global healthcare spending in 2012. That's, that's huge, right? Some interesting words, glow faces, doom scrolling, zombies, the pleasure trap apps, Snapchat dysmorphia, Adonis complex, wellness syndromes, toxic positivity, Echo chambers, gaslighting, love bombing, zombie viruses, plastic beaches, echo anxiety, zoom fatigue, inbox infinity. I do love all these words, but none of these are very good for our mental health, of course. That was the first phase. The experimental phase, the second phase, is then the increased focus that we all have on mental health by creating, I may even say, endless options and experimentations. We know that people aspire to be healthy and happy. This is what this podcast is all about. But what we do see is that people do not only take actions to impact their physical health, but also their mental health. And so in that regard, more solutions come to market. And actually, venture capital funds have called this moment the golden age of mental health tech. Uh, but also industries are moving into the mental health sphere, um, mood boosting foods, music, interiors. We see retreats, we see travel plans focused on mental health. We see a lot of things happening uh, at work. We see exercising for mental health. In fact, the global mental wellness and mental health economy is valued at, listen to this, $121 billion. $121 billion. So there's a lot of experimentation with the good things and the bad things, the positive and the negative sides. Positive side being, you know, stigma around mental health goes away, at least a little bit more. But the negative side is that, I mean, all these people talking about mental health they often don't have a medical degree. So what can we really learn from it? Um, also, the popularity related to mental health might make people self-diagnose maybe a bit too easy making the worst cases remain unnoticed, for example. So we're in this experimental phase where a lot of things happen for the good and um, for the bad. Right now, I think we are moving into a third phase, which I call the fundamental phase, saying that the, there is a growing belief that mental health is fundamentally more than the sum of its parts. We know that you know the current healthcare system might not always be 100% well-equipped to deal with this huge influx of mental health issues. And we also know that experiments are in its infancy phase. This is part of the experimental phase, of course. But what we see now is that a lot of people are very hopeful um, that we will have a very positive and uh, growing evolutions around uh, mental health. And that optimism comes from two things. Basically, the fact that communities will play a huge role in mental health and the fact that we are more focused on a holistic approach. Communities, we're talking about how you can talk about mental health at work or in school, but also different you know, retailers like Little and Marks and Spencer, even Lulumon has set up several initiatives to create you know, communities where people can talk about their mental well-being. Second thing is the holistic approach, of course. We realize more than ever that mental health is closely related to 
physical health, for example. But we also treat mental health beyond just taking medication. So in this fundamental phase, what we see is that we go beyond these small little experimentations and we try to look at it from a broader perspective, from a community perspective, or even from a holistic approach. But that's not enough. Because for the next phase, what we will need is more scientific and more technological advancement. And I call this the instrumental phase because science and technology will be instrumental in mental health care. I believe that there will be three instrumental changes, the use of biomarkers, for example, blood tests, the use of genomics. And I think both can help in the diagnosis, which is difficult right now, and the treatment, which is also difficult right now. Then we have, of course, the rule, the role of nutrition in mental health, because there's an increased conviction that there's a close link between gut health and brain health. And finally, the metaverse, which might increase access to potential health support. All three are expected to have a radical impact on, on mental health, at least in my opinion. And that's why they are so instrumental for the future. But then we arrive in a fifth phase. And so why we are establishing still the fundamentals and the instrumentals or the instrumental parts of our mental health, mental health in itself will in turn become more elemental to our overall health. What do I mean by that is that when you have a poor mental health or a poor psychological health, it can limit you from taking healthy decisions. I mean, obviously, we know that poor mental health is often linked to obesity, gastrointestinal um, issues, cardiovascular diseases, maybe even a weakened immune system. And so what I believe is that in, the fi in that final phase, I think we will see more focus on uh, mental health and the impact that it has on our overall health. I can even make a statement that a poor mental health will be the most critical part of our public health impact that we might have. And so that's why I believe that in the future, mental health will be an, uh, become an essential part of our overall health. And that's how I wrote this newsletter about the recent history, today's reality, and maybe the future of mental health. Back to the panel now. Mo, what's your thought on, on the way that I wrote it and, and how I look at mental health and how it is evolves? I think you, I think it was not only creative, but it was quite, uh, complete. What I love about your article, Christophe, is that it confirms that how we care for mental health and how we give it attention is, is being demystified. And that's hopeful. I think um, it will also create incremental opportunities for meaningful, for meaningful businesses to impact something. You know, I think it just like climate change created a new economy. I think mental health will create a new economy, but the figures you are you know, showing and how much value it has also tells us how hard of a challenge it is, right? And a big fundamental part of mental health resides in two significant factors that we have difficulties controlling. That's why it's so hard. Or we think we have difficulties controlling. The first is the ecosystem, the environment in which we find ourselves from a micro point of view, from, from a macro point of view. And secondly, it's our behaviors and thoughts. And that is where I am a bit less optimistic because this is where human nature comes back to bite us in the butt. Um, knowing human nature, we know that we love shortcuts. And as a brand experience geek, any brand, any product, any service is boosted by convenience. Easy, simple, 
effortless. And that is where I think chemistry or real interventions will take the upper hand once available. Look at stomach balloons. You lie down, people do it for you. We've been serviced in sickness. And I think what we see now is that we talked about Victoza, a jab and you lose, you lose weight, right? So as long as the shortcuts require less effort, effort meaning effort, resources, money, then prevention, we're kind of stuck. Because the ecosystem we're fighting and the biology, the human nature we're fighting is so strong that I applaud every initiative. They will all benefit from it. But I think once we have a convenient, effortless solution, look at microdosing, right? It's so successful because the effort is low. You just have to take something and it kind of works. The most people, most people I, I, I hear taking uh, microdosing are, are really, really happy. Right. So love the attention. I think it's paramount that it's demystified, that it's not stigmatized anymore, that we include it into our overall well-being. But the solutions, I think, will require convenience and simplicity. Destigmatized. I think, Aditi, you had some thoughts on that, right? I agree. You know, mental health is a really big issue and we're definitely seeing a lot more about it since the pandemic happened, since there's at least a recognition of how important it is. Also, there has been a at least a decrease in everybody's mental health since that happened. And of course, when we look at the causes of it or what we can do to fix it, it is multifactorial. It affects not only our daily life, it affects our physical health, etc. I do agree with Mo that it is really difficult. Some of the things that we have to do for ourselves, some of the things or exercises that we might be given by therapists or mental health providers can be difficult to overcome. And some of us, we just, you know, we've come to a place in in history that we want the easy fix. Well, maybe it was always like that. I have no idea. I haven't, I wasn't around, but, you know, we really want an easy fix. We're like a society of like clickbait and uh, quick things to make our nervous system come down. Anything, right? We, we have these hits on social media, for example. And so it becomes harder to ask us to take the time to really build up some of the skills that are needed. I mean, I can give you an example when, you know, I had burnout for a while and, or twice really. And when I talk about it, some of the things that I had to do to get over it the first time are really hard things. They're really a lot of changing your outlook on how things work. It's worth it. It's made my life better now, but it wasn't easy. And I don't, and I understand why people don't necessarily want to do it. And the second thing I'll say is that even though we've come a long way in our discussion about mental health, we have to remember that it's still overall in the world, a stigmatized situation. A lot of people don't have access to it. They don't feel like they should have access to it. Even if they feel like they want it, maybe they're told by their family, their friends, their community that it's something that they don't need. I mean, there's a lot of pressure and societal messaging that creates that situation. And, you know, coming back to my example, doctors are some of that group. They are, they, there's a lot of stigma to get mental health or care for burnout. Uh, and it really does make a difference in how we ask for help or really don't ask for help. So, you know, I think it's a really important topic. I think some of these things need to be continuously talked about because it isn't actually easy. Yeah, I fully agree. Well, you wanted to jump in? I've been working in the, the area of quality of life and burnout for a while. Um, I worked in a Spanish clinic that specializes in that. And what I overall see is that people underestimate the time it took for it to appear versus the time it will take for it to disappear. And uh, there is the, 
I don't know how you call it in English, in physics, that there's the, the law that, that energy is transmitted in the same way, but in a different form, that you, the energy is never lost. So the energy it took to create the illness and the time it took to create the illness, that's what Adili says. We want the shortcut, but we do not acknowledge how latent and how long it took for it to happen. And we just want a shortcut. We, we, we want a life hack for, for health and wellness. And uh, I, my experience is if people acknowledge how long it took for it to happen, they are more elegant with themselves and they give themselves more time to be able to address it. And uh, I think that's, that's an interesting part. And I like your idea about the shortcuts indeed, because, I mean, if you look at everything that humans have created was always shortcuts. How can we shortcut the reward that we get from something, right? If we look at social media, it's a shortcut for so-called social contact. If we look at reality shows, it's basically the same that we saw maybe in our, you know, small villages 50, 60 years ago. Uh, but it's easy to do it from your couch. You don't need to go, you don't need to go out, outside. Um, porn is exactly the same thing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a shortcut for some, relief or some rewards that otherwise might require a lot more effort, right? So, I mean, everything that we made is is around these shortcuts. And I, I do believe that it will be struggle and it will be very hard in the next years to come, specifically because it is indeed quite quite hard to um, to over, overcome indeed. Yeah, and the level of support you get on mental health, right? How the system currently is organized is also underwhelming. Huh? If you look at uh, the way not to say that cancer should have less resources, right? Or that other diseases, cardiovascular disease, should have less resources. But if we acknowledge the severity of the indication, we should also equip the system to be able to address that and service people longer on that and more intensely. Okay, thanks for that uh, discussion. Now uh, let's move to the next segment of the Health Season podcast. Is it something, nothing, or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an ID, an innovation or an evolution forward that sparked their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing or everything? And this month, I'll be the one that brings forward the article that I read. It was about the digital wellness lab at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. It's about social media, or at least the problematic media use that youngsters have. Because we know that young people live their lives on social media. And we know that it's not going away easily. And so parents and even pediatricians, they need to learn to recognize when that behavior becomes a problem. Because we all know social media has been linked to obesity and diabetes. We all know that social media has can or at least can contribute to an impaired social interaction, social isolation and even loneliness. Social media can lead to somatic and mental health problems, including anxiety, depression and stress. It's linked to sleep deficits, to poor dietary habits. It can cause cognitive impairment with symptoms of distraction, procrastination and ADHD. Social media is also associated with substance related and behavioral addictions, such as gambling. And social media may increase the addiction to social media as well. If you're interested in knowing what all the negative effects of um, social media can be, there's actually a public Google Doc available 
I found it in an article. It said that the Google Doc was a 250-page long summary of all published articles about social media and mental health, 250 pages. Now, when I clicked on the link, it was already 310 pages. It's made by Jean Twench or Jean Twench, a psychology professor at San Diego State University, and Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist at the New York University. So there's a lot of relationship between social media and mental health. And what we see definitely in the States right now, there are about 150 product liability lawsuits filed in the US against the social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and even YouTube. That's according to the Financial Times. We also saw Utah, the state of Utah just passed a law limiting social media for minors. And Arkansas and Texas are following suits. School districts in Seattle and even in California are suing leading platforms, charging that they are delivering harmful content to kids. And Congress in the U.S., of course, is putting pressure for a ban on TikTok, among other things, obviously, because of the harmful impact it has on the kids in the States, but even around the world, of course. Now, there is this pediatrician, Michael Rich, who is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School uh, and also the School of Public Health. And he argues that unhealthy internet use is not per se an addiction. He calls it a disorder. And he dubbed it, he called it the problematic interactive media use, or PIMU, that indicates uh, a couple of underlying problems, which include also ADHD, mood or anxiety disorders, or even autism. Now, PIMU, Problematic Interactive Media Use, is actually a collection of symptoms that kids might have when they are seeking to suit themselves, to comfort themselves, or even to distract themselves. Now, Michael Rich and his colleagues defined PMU into and and, and kind of made four categories. You have the uncontrolled video gaming, you have the social media use, you have pornography viewing, and you have information binging of short videos or websites, aka TikTok and Reels on Instagram, for example. Now, the thing is that this pediatrician, Michael Rich, he has created the Digital Wellness Lab at the Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. The purpose of this digital wellness lab is to engage all stakeholders, both from academic research, healthcare, and even the corporate industries, in an open collaboration that is designed to deepen the understanding of the positive and the negative effects of the media and the technology that is used by young people. The purpose is also to understand how they are using them, of course. Basically, the lab is trying to address the concerns of parents, doctors, and lawmakers, because parents and pediatricians are saying kids are in trouble. Policymakers are freaking out, and they're saying, we've got to make a lot of this. And then the ticket entertainment companies are in siege mentality and defensive mode. So this is not a healthy situation. And so what the World Digital Wellness Lab wants to do is they want to analyze all of this, but without villainizing the companies that are involved. Now, it has to be said that the Digital Wellness Lab exists thanks to the sponsorship from major tech platforms such as Twitch, Roblox, Snap, Discord, Meta, and also TikTok. Dr. Michael Rich says it's really about the behavior. It's not really about the device because, I mean, there's a ton of good examples with you know, smartphones and social media. So they are doing fine. So it's really about understanding the behavior. So 
I wanted to bring this article forward and ask the panel, is this something, nothing, or everything? Aditi, what's your thought on this? Do you think that there has to be some recognition about how social media affects people? Uh, even uh, along, aside from the, even the things that you were saying about it, uh, giving you a lot of information, there is a way that kids get bullied in a huge amount, in a much larger amount than they would when everything was done individually. What I would you know, want to know is in this digital wellness lab, if you're bringing in members and representatives from these companies, is that a conflict, right? So if you look at the way we look at clinical research in general, if we know that, that somebody is funding it, it should be a flag because the data or the outcomes may not be exactly right because there is a conflict of interest. And so I'd be curious, like, what is the goal of having them there? Is it just because they want to improve it for children or do they not? I am generally of the mindset that if there's money to be made, most companies are not going to really help. But uh, I'm fairly pessimistic about that. But I do think it's an important topic and there should be better research and better guidelines and regulations about how to fix this. But I don't know how, right? So a lot of children are better with technology than their parents are. So how do they, how do you actually fix that problem? Yeah. I, I, talking about the companies being involved, I think I fully agree with you. At the same time, if you look at it from the company's perspective, how can they make considerable effort or change without, you know, involving the medical community or involving the whole ecosystem or different stakeholders, of course. And um, so somehow from their perspective, I think this is also what they need because they're doing things. I mean, you have the, the, remind me of a break, the daily time limits, a notification, that those are the minimum things that they can do. They also give some advice on how to deal with social media. But I think they really need some assistance, I think, to have to optimize the way that they function or the impact that they have on kids, at least. I agree. There has to be. There has to be recognition that this is a bigger problem. Because I think a lot of, at least the culture in the U.S., is that this is the onus on parents and not on companies or on the community. And that's just not true. I mean, the entire, everything is linked together. There isn't like one person that's responsible. This is just the way that the world works. I mean, you can't really stop it in just one aspect or control it from one aspect. I've also noticed that Instagram, for example, because you mentioned the parents, is that Instagram just really recently reinstalled parental control even for teenagers. It's not fixed. So like if, if, if for minors, they can't go on social media, at least TikTok even banned it or, or prohibited it, but, um, in certain cases, but in Instagram, what they did is they, they added new tools so that parents can help their teenagers to schedule time, to clear boundaries, um, to perhaps even, you know, look at the type of topics that are prompted to these uh, teenagers. So it, it's coming. There's, there's some changes, but it's, it's all very small right now. Right. Mo, what do you think? I think uh, it's an incredible challenge for parents, but I think it's also, I don't think protecting children is going to be the solution. I think making resilient children, you know, having them, having parents who help them look at the tsunami of things that are presented to them and helping them navigate that, you know, and sticking, being alongside your children and, and discussing how that works. I think is the way forward, that it requires new skills from parents, right? But I think scary parents make scary children. 
right? Well, I remember when I went to the playground with my daughter when she was young, I was standing next to her and I said, you know what, this is kind of a safe environment for her to butt her head just in the sand. I think that she'll be fine and she'll learn. So just being too close to your children, because once they leave, they leave the house, they have all, all that environment to deal with. And I think if you help them navigate that environment, they'll be okay. So I think I believe more in resilience than in protection. And I think that requires really, really interesting skills. So the over-regulating, I think we're underestimating the power of that environment and, and, and the opportunities they have to interact with it. So I think the real opportunity is to create resilient children, knowing how, giving them the tools to navigate that and giving them the compass to see what is okay and what is not okay. And then secondly, doing that also with their environment, right? And uh, the kids they hang out with and uh, creating a safe place for them to come home and discuss that. So I think the overprotection, I think, is not feasible. The guidance and the, the limiting is, is really not feasible. It's like saying, you know, you can't have sugar at home and then they go to school, right? <laughs> and then they get it from their friends and things like that. So I believe in resilience, not so much in protection. But I have a follow-up question to that because I know what you mean by that, and I, that makes sense, right? And you also can't control everything. But a lot of these apps are designed to overcome most of the human ways that we have to control some of the things, right, in our brain, right? That reward center to keep checking it, you know, just like so people scroll mindlessly for hours at times. So resilient or not, there are other things at play here that make this much more difficult to pull yourself out of. And so no matter how resilient we can be, there are just the way that human nature works that makes some of this hard to do. So not really, I guess, a question, but it's a point that, you know, there has to be some regulations around it as well, because it's, it's just not set up that way. It is an incredible force to be reckoned with. But um, I also think, you know, for instance, my partner's child loves sugar, and sometimes she just lets her have, his, have her way, and then she's sick. And uh, it's the same with that. If you want to scroll the entire evening, scroll the entire evening, but I'll be there next to your bed to wake you up at six. Right. And you do that once, twice, three times, four times. And then you just make it hard because everything else stays the same. So, yes, I do agree with you. I, Aditi, they, you know, if, if it's, if it's in incredible violence or anything else, you know, and they are engineered to just talk to your brain. Right. It is really, really clever, but that's where the challenge lies, I think. Right. So. I think this is worth an entire podcast, maybe with a, a child psychologist or anything else, because it's so important. It's about parenting. And then last but not least, can we serve as an example? Because often it's, you know, you should, you should, and it's too much. And if we, if we would count how long we spend our, you know, my parents never explained me things. They showed me by their behavior, by who they were. We also overestimate telling children things rather than showing them. My parents never sat with me and say, this is lesson one of being a child. No, they just were who they were. And then they, they inspired me by, by behavior. So I think that's also on us as adults, right? At dinner, are you sitting there with your phone or aren't you, right? And you, I think there's also a lot of hypocrisy where, once again, we as parents want a convenient solution to ask someone else to do it for us, right? Give us a guide. Tell us how we should do it. Just be it and they'll know. So, yeah, it's a challenge for parents, mostly, 
And then, um, yeah, I've made my point. I think. I, I, I think I, I fully agree. I fully agree. I mean, I remember when when I say when I explain to my son he shouldn't watch the screen that long because it's a blue light and etc. etc. And then he looks at me. He's like, "You're spending like eight, ten hours a day watching your computer screen. Isn't isn't that?" the same and he's 10 years and then old. people say yes but it's my job and then i have to say yeah maybe i don't want to do this but it's it's what i have to do it's how the world works so i it's it's a different situation we're in and i, I do agree with aditi as well i mean these things are made to i mean you talked about shortcuts mo these things are made to have shortcuts of reward systems you know the dopamine rush there's a reason why these small films or, or just videos are all only like six seconds because every time again you get a new dopamine rush but in that regard, what I really liked was an, um, an innovation I saw recently from ABZ Labs. They have this thing called digital nutrition. First of all, it's actually sort of if you want a digital pharmaceutical in a sense that if you, if you want to feel better, if you want to focus more, you can watch certain videos that you know trigger acetylcholine or maybe not um, trigger dopamine, etc. But what they also have, and this is something that I really liked, is that they basically, apparently it's still a prototype, but they have tools to categorize content, online content, and see what it exactly triggers. Does it trigger acetylcholine or does it trigger oxytocin? Does it trigger testosterone? Does it trigger dopamine? Does it trigger serotonin? Whatever it may be. So they kind of label different contents based on that so that you can actually say, I want my you know dopamine released limited when I go online. I, th- I don't think they're nowhere near to actually making it broad. Actually, they were bought by um, a new social media app called IRL in real life. But that social media app is struggling now. They've just fired a lot of a lot of people as well. So I'm not quite sure whether it ever come to market in a good way. But I really like that idea of, because right now we're numblessly seeing all these things passing by. But you can imagine that you can limit the type of you know dopamine triggers that we get. And then we only see videos that trigger less dopamine, for example. That is a very interesting point. And that reminds me of a British study that has been done about children who had a very sedentary life, right? And they looked at the dietary habits of these children and what we gave them to eat. And it's, it appeared that they did not have enough omega fatty acids in there because apparently the synapses that stimulate, that are stimulated once we get cognitive and emotional impulses were not well equipped. So they put these children on a higher omega regimen, and it seemed that the reason why these children had to look at moving images or very intense triggers is because they were not stimulated enough. So they they needed that high-potency triggers to be stimulated. And apparently, after they had that diet, they were once again stimulated by a simple thing as a book. They went walking again, you know, they played outside. So that's also a very, you talk about digital supplements, but we could also, you know, the dietary supplements also play a role in which our children are vulnerable to these impulses, right? That's an interesting study that, that uh, just you just reminded me of that. So also, it's not just about behavior, but I think the dietary aspect also kind of makes our children more resilient to be able to be happy with less intense triggers. You know, these gamings, these games, their sound, movement, intense visual things, and that's what these youngsters need to be triggered 
right? So we could lower that threshold so that they're happier with less going outside. And then they get an emotional feedback that is positive from just walking outside. They're, most of the children are bored walking outside because they're not triggered sensorially enough by that. Thank you. It is clearly something, something difficult to manage, but now time for something else. In this health system world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness, and consumer businesses. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into the wellness and healthcare space, while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside of their own industry. This brings the following question. What behavior, innovation, or trend from one industry can be worthwhile for another industry? Or in other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in? So tell me, Mo, what's the ID innovation or evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? Well, Christophe, you know that you and I always had a, a weak spot for luxury and luxury brands. And I have good news. Elon Musk is no longer the richest, the richest person in the world. The attention-seeking boss of SpaceX, Twitter, Tesla has been overtaken by his antipode, the discreet, elegant French LVMH billionaire Bernard Arnault. And Bernard Arnault, the billionaire chairman and CEO of luxury goods conglomerate LVMH, has been making headlines for a remarkable physical appearance. The man is 73 and still looking really good. And despite being 73, he looks fit and healthy with no signs of aging slowing down. So I wonder, you know, what happens? Why is he so fit? He's really working hard. And what is his secret to staying young and vibrant? And many pointed towards the investment he made by his LVMH flagship brand Dior in the field of reverse aging. Dior, which is first of all a fashion brand, but also is very successful in cosmetics, has been at the forefront of skincare innovation for many years. And its latest venture into reverse aging has been met with great success. And the brand is successful and their revolutionary products and treatments claim to slow down and even reverse the signs of aging, offering consumers a chance to look and feel younger. But I think that the implication of LVMH investments in reverse aging might go far beyond just skincare. The luxury group has always been on the cutting edge innovation, and it's, it's not difficult to imagine a future where LVMH expands beyond skincare and into the broader field of health and wellness. So most recently, Dior Beauty entered the spotlight with its late March announcement at the 21st Aesthetic and Anti-Aging Medicine World Congress in Monaco, of all places, that it had established an international reverse aging scientific advisory board. And the board comprises of no less than 600 researchers and 18 experts. They have over 700 publications. And these experts include Dr. Nicola Neretti, biologist at the Institute for Brain and Neural System at Brown University, Dr. David Furman, the director of 1000 Immunomes Project at Stanford University, and our own Belgian Annabelle Decotigny, PhD of telomere attrition at the Catholic University of Louvain. Dior's own research will add to the knowledge base on aging science around stem cells, inflammation, and cell communication. And the idea is to better understand the 12 signs of aging, including genomic instability, epigenetic changes, stem cell fatigue, and chronic inflammation. 
Now, what I really find interesting is the potential of LVMH to move into that is immense by levering its brand recognition and reputation, re- reputation for quality. The luxury group could become a major player in the health and wellness industry. They have an audience that is already attentive, that is already willing, that is affluent, right? And this could own, not only fuel the growth of the company, but also offer consumers a new level of luxury in the pursuit of better health. It's an exciting prospect that could redefine what it means to be a luxury brand in the 21st century, so luxury health. And with DR leading the charge, LVMH is well positioned to expand beyond skincare and into the broader field of health and wellness. And the potential for growth and success is enormous. We're already looking at incredible growth rates, but experts are really doubting that they'll be able to maintain these growth rates if they don't expand in new ventures. So it's an exciting time to be watching this luxury giant as it continues to push the boundaries of growth and opportunity. So what if a luxury brand would be better at doing science than the scientific brands with the amount of money and investment that they have, would they be able to challenge the status quo in terms of health and in healthcare and reverse aging? What is your opinion, Christophe? Oh, <laughs> I think, first of all, let me just get one thing straight. I'm not particularly a fan of luxury brands. I just love the creativity that they bring forward. Um, so there's, I think there's a small difference there. Just wanted to get that uh, straight. I love fashion and I love the creativity that they bring. But right now, I also do love the way that they are moving into this space. I think what I wrote about in my book is that you know, health and happiness is so important for every one of us that we will see every type of business moving into this area. To me, this is no surprise. We also already talked in, in previous podcasts about the importance and the, the huge opportunities that there are in the anti-aging and longevity industry, right? So to me, this is not um, a big surprise. Also, if you look at, you know, the number of companies that today have chief medical officers or chief health officers. Uh, I think about, you know, obviously Google and IBM, but also, you know, Disney, Goodyear, Delta Airlines, retail supermarket uh, department store, Kroger, PepsiCo, Unilever, even Philip Morris, the, um, the cigarette manufacturer, they all have chief medical officers, sometimes pulled away from pharmaceutical or life science uh, companies. So this, to me, this is not a surprise that again, this type of consumer-oriented company is moving into the, the health and, and self-care markets. It's part of what I call the healthification of, of, of industries. I think that there's a lot of promise in the fact that this is skincare, because what I really like, I mean, I think you were the one, Mo, that once told me that our skin is our biggest organ. So it's logic that skin is definitely focused for healthcare. But what I really like about the skincare industry is that they do a couple of things really, really well. You know, they make a clear distinction between what is medical, what is prevention, what is well-being, and what is lifestyle. I think it's probably the only industry that has such a clear distinction between all four of them. At least, I'm not. It's not maybe not 100, uh, but what it's, it's maybe the, the only industry that knows how to make that uh, that this that, that distinction. They also have a very, they're very strong in, you know, consumer appealing branding. I mean, you, Mo, know that better than anyone else, but they are very good in, you know, the way that they radiate their, their promise, their branding, everything. It makes you feel almost good. And they also understand really well what occupies people, uh, which I then call life aspirations, because to me, life aspirations are the new needs. So because of these three things, 
I think there are very real places, and I'm looking to this um, in, in, a, in a very you know exciting way because they can have a huge impact. Because these three things that they bring forward, many other industries, many other companies don't have right now. So this could be very impactful. Obviously, there's this thing about it's a luxury brand, so you need to you know you need to pay for it. You need to have the money to pay for it. And there I have, might have some mixed feelings in a sense that, I mean, it's very good because innovation needs to come from small experiments and these small experiments are expensive. And so you need to find people to, to, to pay for them. That is definitely something that, that I'm not afraid of. I mean, sometimes we need to do things that are only um, available to a small number of people just to get them out there and to learn from it before we can actually scale them. So that, that I, I think it makes, makes totally sense. I think the bad thing is, of course, that we are losing a little bit of the social part. Health has always been very um, a social thing, definitely in Europe. Everybody, we talk about health equity on the podcast before as well. So this is not really equitable if you want, or if this is not uh, very social in a way. As long as it helps to broaden innovations and make sure that we can scale it faster, then I'm definitely in favor of this. But, you know, the, the whole premiumization, as I sometimes call it, of health and self-care, it's something that we see pretty much everywhere, definitely also in the in the wellness industry for the good and for the bad. So I, I, I like this example. I think we will see a lot of things happening in anti-aging and longevity, even in other industries, but specifically, you know, the skincare business. I like, I'm, I'm very keen on seeing what they will bring forward and how fast they will do it and what will come out of it afterwards, let's say. Okay. I think what might be a blind spot for the moment is it's not just about the, you know, LVMH has a hotel. Right. Um, so Arnaud has bought Cheval Blanc. They, they have bought very interesting resorts. So if you integrate skincare into the experiential part and in the service part, you know, that could really, really enter the kind of the, the healthcare. On the other hand, Aditi, do you think even a luxury group like that has enough resources to make a significant dent into something that feels clinically and scientifically sound? Do you think they have the expertise and the competence to kind of challenge those who are doing it for their bread and butter? Yes and no. I mean, they have the resources to hire people to do it, right? And you read the article, they're hiring dermatologists and people who are anti-aging. But I do think that they're going to be catering to a certain market because the reality is they're not a health company and people aren't necessarily going to trust them. In general, though, I'll say too, the anti-aging market at the moment is highly regulated. It's also newer and it's hard to harder for it to be equitable because only certain people can have access to it right so not all over the world do people are people able to access whatever the stem cells or the hormones and peptides that people are prescribing but and i don't think that Dior's dual is trying to actually cater to all people right they're trying to cater to themselves and to the people who use their product already I don't think they're really competing with the healthcare system as a whole. I don't think they're trying to, right? I think they're trying to uh, say that we have uh, these great skincare products. We're going to have dermatologists are going to be anti-aging experts. And so we're going to have the best products that are anti-aging. To me, honestly, it just feels gimmicky. I, I don't find it particularly convincing. I just think that everybody's trying to do the same thing. You know, it, it'll work. People who like Dior, it's going to work. But I don't, I, I mean, I just find it sort of ridiculous. 
I think it's a for a brand and a group like LVMH is a small step up from using a skincare cream to having an IV drip in a place that is very luxurious, right? So we also see them spending times, you know, in hotels. We had, you know, the expert on hospitality and health and, and hospitality. I think it might upgrade where you find people that already, and it's a perfect match, as you say, those who are willing to spend very high budgets on very posh creams wouldn't mind stepping up to something that, you know, looking at the anti-aging from an internal point of view, you know, if you, if you care for the outside, you might care for the inside. So I think there is potential, but there's also a very receptive audience they're already catering to, to kind of upsell what they're doing for the skin by doing that for the body. And if they don't, that would be, I think, a, a waste of opportunity. And it won't be the masses. I do, I do agree. But I think, you know, when you're at Cheval Blanc and you already have the Dior skincare that costs seven, eight hundred euros for a 50 ml, you might as well go to the basement in the spa and have an IV drip with a physician. You know, we see hospitality brands already integrating medical experts in their stay, just as uh, airlines are having nurses on board. But I think it's true. Is it going to be gimmicky or is it really going to impact you know, the overall health? I think, Christophe. Yeah, I think because I heard Aditi say, I mean, they're not going to compete with the healthcare system. I know where this is coming from. I think the one thing that I'm thinking of is, I believe I'm, it's not going to be the next two to five years, but it, it'll be the next five to 10 years for sure, in my opinion, is that these medical departments or these medical focuses of these different type of companies, they will not go away right? They will only grow and they become more important. And so my question or my challenge for if maybe Aditi is, will they, you know, compete with the healthcare system? Yeah, sure. In, in many matters, they won't, right? The question is, how will the healthcare system perhaps evolve? Because they will come in certain territories that are today managed by the healthcare system that might no longer be the case. Obviously, everything that is urgency care will not be you know, managed by Dior, let's say. But there's maybe other parts of the healthcare system that today are still managed by the healthcare system that might be managed by different players, such as AD or, or any, 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 anything else within the ALVMH group. Um, what's your thought? Well, in this case, they're really talking about cosmetic, like something cosmetic, right? They're not talking about healthcare as a, overall. They're talking anti-aging from a cosmetic sense. Even now, though, if you look at the way the healthcare system works, dermatologists, plastic surgeons, they're part of the healthcare system. But when they're doing cosmetic procedures, they're a little bit outside of it because what they're accomplishing is not necessarily considered necessary for healthcare, right? And so this is where I think that this is leading. Maybe it'll bring forth uh, new innovations for that particular line. But I don't see it. And for that reason, I don't think it's competing with the healthcare system. We can talk about other companies which are trying to do different things. But in this example, what they're doing is really cosmetic. And I just don't think it's going to be part of the healthcare system as such. I think we all we're all like a, also I think we often don't understand what the healthcare system means, what a healthcare system means. This is not this is not a healthcare system. This is like literally one little thing in cosmetics. I hear. Okay. Very interesting point. Thank you very much for your opinion. Back to you, Christophe. Yeah, indeed. Thank you for the opinions. Thanks for the smart words. And with this, I'd like to wrap up the Health Enthusiasm podcast for this month. Thank you for listening. 
If you like the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. By the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi and Mo Suvina. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm panel and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.